there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and nice to have you here. I just finished talking with Jeremy Brown and Matthew D. Johnson about their new edited volume, Maoism at the Grassroots, Everyday Life in China's Era of High Socialism. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2015. Now, the volume is really important, I think, in many different ways. Not only does it contribute to kind of changing and retextualizing how we understand the period of Chinese history under Mao, and you'll hear a lot um, about that in the hour to come, but it also really importantly translates and makes available some important scholarship by Chinese authors writing originally in the Chinese language about these topics. And so over the course of our conversation, what you'll hear about is not just, although it includes um, the author's reflections on this period, on the historiography of this period, um, and their uh, interventions in their own edited essays in the larger edited volume that help to, um, again, kind of transform, I think, how and re-grassrootsify how we think about this period. But you'll also hear them talking about the process and the practices that brought about and resulted in this volume as an object. And over the course of that conversation, some really important things that come up include um, how to navigate and manage most productively international relationships among scholars working in very different kinds of contexts, politically, academically, um, and in terms of uh, thinking about and materializing what we're doing when we write a piece that has an argument. I mean, I think working in very different local contexts, um, there are a lot of different ways of doing history, and that is one of the things that makes the field so exciting to work in. And it's also one of the things um, that's really not just full of opportunities, but also challenges when we come together in collaborative projects. So you'll hear about collaboration, you'll hear about translation, you'll hear about time and space and all kinds of other things. So I'll let you get to it, um, and I'll just say thank you to Jeremy and to Matt for making the time, and thank you, listeners, for supporting the channel and for listening. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jeremy Brown and Matthew D. Johnson about their new edited volume, Maoism at the Grassroots. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, both of you, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today and for giving us a great volume to talk about. Welcome to the channel. Thank you, Carla. So let's start by talking a little bit about how you both came to the field. Jeremy, what brought you to the study of Chinese history? Well, I... uh Grew up in Iowa, wanted to go as far away from Iowa as possible as an undergraduate, and, and I ended up at, uh, at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and my first advisor said, uh, study Chinese. The Chinese teacher's a little better uh, than the Japanese teacher. That's what it came down to. And then, you know, so it was a language. I mean, the language brought me uh, to China, and uh, then it was a question of how what's, what's the best discipline, and I chose history because it's such a flexible discipline and you can really uh, choose your topics, choose your approaches, choose your theories. Um, so, but I'm, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm interested in China today, whenever today is, it's a moving target. Uh, and, uh, and I'm interested in explaining how China's problems in the, in the present or recent past 
uh, came to be. So that's that's why the Mao period for me is a, is a key period to study because it's still uh, so so influential. And Jeremy, when you're not writing um, or collaborating on edited volumes about Maoism at the grassroots, what are you writing typically in your scholarly life? Uh, social history of the Mao period. I'm, I'm doing a bigger project about accidents and their aftermath, so how the Communist Party uh, tried to prevent and then dealt with or covered up accidents and how people who were affected by accidents uh, experienced them and experienced the aftermath and sought justice or sought compensation or tried to avoid blame. So it's a, that's, a, that's a social history project that's trying to get away from the standard narrative of political campaigns, cultural revolution, Great leap forward. And then I'm, I'm doing more of a textbook style uh, new history of the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989 as well. So that's been useful to push push my social history approach into the 1980s, which I think is, is a, the time has come to turn the 1980s into history as well. Cool. Nice. Great. So, Matt, how did you come to work on China and its history? Um, I was uh, a student at Harvard University, uh, living in Mather House, um, where we overlapped. Carla, uh, we should throw that out there. And Listener, um, listeners should know that we both actually <laughs> lived in Mather House at the same time. And I'm, yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what did you say yesterday? The, the box that Dunster came in. And I was a social studies major and I was studying international relations and political economy. And I was kind of casting about for something to latch onto amidst all the um, theory. Uh, and um, my grandmother, uh, who was working as a travel agent at the time, noted that many of her uh, more successful clients were traveling to China. And so uh, I was a complete opportunist about it. I decided to become somebody who focused on China. And I became a historian because uh, I I think history is a fascinating field and it's multidisciplinary. And it seemed at the time anyway, less um, narrow analytically than the social sciences did in the United States. So here I am, a historian of modern China. And Matt, what are you working on when you're not co-editing volumes on Maoism at the grassroots? Oh, well, the big project is um, this collaborative endeavor uh, that I work on along with Amanda Smith at Michigan State University and Jakob Eifert at the University of Chicago, which is the PRC History Group. We have a website, uh, prchistory.org. We publish an open access born digital journal, the PRC History Review, and we manage the listserv HPRC. And then in the margins, I find time to work on my own uh, research on um, the history of property propaganda in China uh, in the 20th century and um, transnational aspects of U.S.-China relations during the Cold War. Great. Um, And for listeners who haven't already had the pleasure of reading and experiencing your work, um, we're going to talk a little bit about both of your research in terms of how it uh, manifested in your individual contributions to the volume in a little bit. So before we get there, though, let's talk about the genesis of the project. And I'd really like to hear what brought each of you to the project, and then we can move from there to talk about um, how that collaboration took off and how that worked. So, Jeremy, if you would start, what brought you to the project that ultimately resulted in this volume? Uh, well, to be honest, Matt brought me to the project, uh, and i got to give him credit for, uh, for saying, let's do something. Uh, let's, so I, I should let him talk about why he, uh, was so bold to do that and to ask to do it. 
Um, do you want to? Why don't? Why, can we turn it to Matt so he can? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll jump in really quickly. I remember. I remember speaking with Jeremy on the phone about doing a project on China in the 1960s, um, pre-cultural revolution, uh, because I think. Um, and what then quickly made it a collaborative endeavor was that both of us felt uh, that there was space for this research um, to emerge and have um, meaning as, uh, you know, China apart from the cultural revolution and that new social histories were starting to emerge as well. And we felt like we've been, you know, working hard in this field and we knew others who were working hard in this field. And um, it seemed like a good time to start pulling things together. Mm-hmm. So why... Why Jeremy? Like, why, for the two of you, why did you, what brought you, this is actually something, um, I know this is an unusual question, but I'm increasingly interested in the way that scholarly work and academic work is moving toward incorporating more collaboration, right? More collaborative kinds of relationships. So what brought the two of you together um, (laughs) in a way that made it feel like this would be a productive project to work together on? Jeremy. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I mean, Matt and I are friends. We've been friends yeah. uh, ever since we were in graduate school together mm-hmm. at, at UC San Diego, which is uh, a really intensive cohort-based program where we work together, uh, we compete against each other in a friendly way, and mm-hmm. uh, we know the ins and outs of each other's projects. We know our strengths and weaknesses. We know our the different ways that we work. And so it was, uh, I mean, we're not the only uh people who came out of this uh, program from San Diego, mentored by Joe Escherich and Paul Pickowitz, who have done collaborative projects afterwards. Uh, this is not the first edited volume to come out of that uh, project, and it's probably not going to be the last one because we, we know each other so well. I mean, Matt and I have very different approaches uh, and methods and styles, and I think that, uh, that that's a challenge when you collaborate, but it's also a real opportunity to have uh, to bring those approaches together and to negotiate and uh and try to build on our our strengths and and make up for our our collective weaknesses it worked really well in the end i think and it turned out uh to be uh the the challenges of collaborating i think uh were were definitely worth it in the end uh after this you know it's it's 2016 now it took Mm -hmm. five years from conference to book which means that it took uh, basically six years from the first phone call and the first conversation about it. It's changed so much, but I think every change was for the better. Uh, and, and maybe I'll, I'll turn it over uh, to Matt on that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a great experience. I, I like, I would just echo Jeremy's comments that we knew each other's work styles pretty well uh, before the project even um, came together, but we had overlapped in China uh, while doing research in addition to having uh, spent a lot of uh, time in seminar together and our, um, you know, partners, families uh, have gotten to know each other over the years. And so, you know, it's it's been one of those very uh, uh, organic, you know, kinds of collaborations that comes out of just uh, knowing another person intellectually and personally really well. Very cool. And if we have time at the end, maybe I'll try to ask you a little bit more about um, like what you both think made that program at UC San Diego so um, uh, such a crucible for fostering this kind of collaborative work, right? I mean, is there something that those of us who are not running um, that graduate program could do, right, to create that kind of environment um, for our students and for ourselves? But I'm not going to ask you that question now. Um, so keep that in mind, and maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, just to kind of have that percolate, because I think it's something maybe we can all think about. But let's mm-hmm. talk a 
about the workshop um, so that we kind of get into the volume itself. Um, in the book itself, you talk about the, a workshop at SFU, Simon Fraser University, in 2010 um, that kind of formed the raw material that eventually became the volume. Um, so can you talk about that workshop and, and what was the process for, for going or what for you were some of the most notable and important aspects of the process of going from workshop to volume? Jeremy, can you start? Yeah, well, we needed uh, we needed money first to run this workshop. And so we I applied, uh, being based in Canada at Simon Fraser, I applied to SHIRC, the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of China, which generously funded uh, the main body of the research costs and, and they require a certain number of Canadian participants. Luckily we have uh, really good scholars in Canada working on China. And then our, our main thought was, uh, you know, we want a mix of senior scholars and mid-career people and, uh, re- you know, recent, recently minted PhDs, younger scholars uh, who are working with really interesting and new sources, uh, grassroots t- style sources, uh, not not necessarily focusing on elite politics, but focusing on everyday life in villages and in cities. So that was part of our criteria. We went to people we knew. We went to people we heard about. Uh, we didn't actually have a, a greatly, fo- a really impressively focused proposal. Basically, we had a time period, uh, which was at that point basically six, 1960s through 1980s, and we ended up uh, ditching the 80s and moving backwards a little bit into the 50s as the course of the project went on. Um, we had, uh, I guess, slightly more of an interdisciplinary focus at the, at the conference uh, where we had a, a few literature-focused papers that ended up uh, not really fitting the project. Uh, and we, so we had to, and we were forced by the press to make some tough decisions about what to include and what, what we couldn't include. Um, and then, you know, we, we couldn't have as many Chinese scholars as we would have wanted come to the workshop. We had one scholar, Yang Kui Song, came from China to the workshop and was a really crucial contributor. Uh, so good. I mean, his paper was so good that we made it chapter number one. And it was so good that we decided, uh, you know, going from conference to book, let's go out and solicit uh, some more chapters from the top Chinese scholars working on PRC history, whose work is, uh, frankly, better in a lot of ways than those of us writing in English. Uh, I mean, it's different. It's, it's different, but it's, it's not any worse. I mean, it's just as good and better in some ways. And, and to bring uh, those other scholars into the book was one of the main changes that we made from workshop to uh, book. Matthew, did you want to add anything or speak to your experience? Oh, uh, it was just a fantastic environment in which to hold the conference. I mean, there's a great group of scholars working on China now uh, across Canada, I think I'd say. And so, you know, it was really a North American conference uh, and um, started out with, uh, like Jeremy said, less Chinese participation than we would have liked. But, um, you know, things really took off once we uh, started putting the book together. But, you know, for listeners who are interested in the um, conference to edited volume transition, I mean, I, again, would just echo Jeremy's comments that I think the uh, final volume that we ended up with um, very, very different uh, from the kind of um, volume, in a sense, that we were basically proposing when we proposed uh, the conference. And it just speaks to um, how much we learned, even in the process of organizing the conference itself and reading those papers, how much uh, amazing new scholarship on grassroots society uh, in China there was out there. And so that then just became the focus. 
So one of the notable things about um, this transition from conference um, to book sounds like it was the incorporation of a substantial number of contributions from Chinese scholars. And those contributions, as far as I understand, were originally in Chinese. Is that right? Or at least some of them uh, That's right. would have been in Chinese. Um, so can you talk about the process of translating and editing those chapters? Because that seems like it was an important part um, of the genesis of the volume. Jeremy, can you tell us um, a little bit about what you take to be some of the most important lessons of or aspects of that experience for you. Sure. This was, uh, I mean, this, this slowed down the book, uh, soliciting, getting the Chinese uh, articles, translating them. We, we paid a translator to translate them who translated them really well. Um, and we learned a lot in that process. Uh, basically, if you translate an article-length Chinese uh, piece um, into English, sentence by sentence or word for word, it becomes way too long. And the style is very different of uh, the, the argumentative style of a Chinese article or book chapter is very different than the style that we have here in North America, where the argument is, is subtle in the original Chinese. Uh, it's not front loaded. It's you don't get the argument at the beginning. It builds yeah, and you sure. finally get the argument at the end. And you have a lot of kind of background uh, that may or may not be necessary and so we ended up, have, Matt and I ended up having to spend a ton of time editing these translations, not just uh, to turn them into natural English, which was another huge challenge, uh, but also to, to make the organization fit the other papers in, in the book. And, uh, and so I, I learned a lot from that. And I got to give uh, credit to my mother, Carolyn Brown. We, we both owe her a great deal. That's she's, true. She's a, she, <laughs> my mom's a professional editor. She, uh, she pro bono. Uh, did the last round of edits on the translated chapters to make them readable in English. And this was a, a demand of one of the anonymous reviewers who said, you know, Brown and Johnson, you guys can write, uh, you guys can edit. These Chinese chapters are still not readable enough. And, uh, and so then we, we turned to my mother who, uh, who made that final contribution. <laughs> Great. Matt, is there anything that you wanted to add to that process? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, obviously I would <laughs> agree uh, wholeheartedly that, you know, the most important thing was to get the chap get get those chapters into shape so that I mean, for some of these uh scholars who we invited to participate. This was the first time that um, their work was appearing in English or the first time that their work on these topics uh, was appearing in English. And so it was just very important, obviously, to make sure that the um, articles, you know, sort of drew in uh, the, the, the readership that they deserved and that their um, arguments were clear. And I would say, you know, in terms of elusive style, uh, just having, you know, wrapped up a, a conversation today with a colleague um, about, you know, what's what's going to be perhaps at, at, at or in the background at certain points in our conversation is the issue of intellectual politics in both the uh, in, in both North America or let's let's put it another way in China and outside of China. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, that. Uh, well, crossing that bridge was definitely an interesting experience. And, and, you know, maybe later in the interview, we can talk more about the ways in which collaborative scholarship that, uh, you know, links North America with China continues to be um, a sort of adventure, I think, for those on both sides. Oh, let's talk about it now. 
Actually, oh, oh. Um, <laughs> since, you, since you brought it up, and it's now, um, yeah. and it, you know, it's very much part of this conversation about the genesis of the volume, and you know, and how we come to have this kind of object. Um, Matt, would you just go on? I mean, uh, for you, what were some of the notable aspects of that adventure? Well, um, I mean, yeah, just just learning uh, about the the current state of scholarship in China. I mean, most of us who have done research on the PRC will have through electronic uh, articles, databases, and that kind of thing learned about more or less the broader landscape of scholarship in China. But in terms of, um, you know, research that's being done, a kind of right up to the minute perspective, uh, a sense of what the landscape looks like, a sense of what sorts of historiographical questions are shaping that field. Um, I think there's still a tremendous amount to learn. Uh, and and it goes both ways as well. I, I think that um, there is, you know, perhaps uh, uh, in terms of putting the two sides in conversation with one another, uh, you know, for, for various reasons. Uh, some are some are political. Some simply have to do with cross-cultural communication. Um, you know, there there may be a reticence, uh, you know, on, on both sides to engage uh, seriously with um, scholarship uh, being produced on the other, so to speak. And uh, I, I don't want to make more of this than, uh, you know, it, it, it perhaps uh, deserves, but at the same time, definitely worth um, thinking about that, uh, you know, as, as an international collaboration, uh, there's um, a lot of uh, value that, that one derives from, um, you know, really paying attention to not just other scholars and, and their specific work, but kind of the broader landscape that they're coming from. Jeremy, was there anything that you wanted to add to that reflection? Well, I, I'm sort of sad now thinking about it, that the period in which we were engaging with these Chinese scholars, Yang Kuisong, Cao Shuji, Sha Qing, Qing, Wu Zhe, and Wang Haiguang. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, Matt and I were both going to conferences in Shanghai at East China Normal University, uh, which is where Yang Kuisong is based. Cao Shuji is at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. Wang Haiguang was at the Central Party uh, Academy, and now he's back, he's down in Shanghai. So that was sort of the center of this group of scholars who are doing critical history of the People's Republic of China, not party history. They're explicitly defining themselves as not doing party history. They're doing history of the PRC, which is a real political statement for them to be making. And that means they can be critical. Uh, they can look at different types of party of sources that are not party history sources, and they don't have to, and they don't want to stick to the uh, established politically correct party narrative. And what, what, what makes me sad about uh, talking about it now is I realize now in retrospect, those were the glory days of that approach when it was possible to, to have these international conferences that I could go to and see the work that they were doing and say, Hey, could, would you like to uh, have this in, in our volume? We got this project. That's sort of how it worked. I mean, that was uh, to look at the Hu Jintao years and say that was uh, a period of openness uh, when it was possible for this kind of uh, collaboration and approach to flourish. And now in the Xi Jinping years, uh, it's a different environment in which uh, the the people trying to do that kind of work are experiencing great difficulty in getting funding, uh, getting their graduate students through, being able to publish anything. Uh, they have journals that they're not able to publish, getting our work translated. And everything that they're trying to do now has hit roadblocks politically yeah. in this new environment. And, and we didn't foresee that at all. I mean, we, we, we saw this great momentum uh, in the 2010, 2011, 2012 period, uh, hoping, hoping that it would continue. Uh, and it's it's that's what it's, it's disappointing that uh, that it's it's become more difficult to do it. Yeah, 
I hear that actually increasingly um, and a whole lot from people. I'm trying to work with colleagues um, on the mainland right now. So it's, it's really too bad to hear. So let's move on um, from the process to the actual volume itself. So in the introduction, both of you talk about some of what you take to be the most, or some of the most significant, at least historiographical contributions that the um, volume and its contents are making. So let's talk a little bit about that. Now, in the intro, you talk about some of the most important ways um, that the work in the volume diverges from the typical analysis of the Mao Zedong era. And some of that has to do with where you're looking and where the pieces in the volume are looking for source material to talk about that era. Um, so, Jeremy, you've already kind of talked a little bit about um, the way that an interest in more grassroots sources motivated the conference um, and the sort of putting together of the slate for the conference in the first case. Um, and also you talk about in the volume how that shaped part of the contribution the volume's making. Um, so did you want to talk at all about that a little bit more? Like when we're talking about and when you're thinking about grassroots sources, what kinds of sources do you think about um, that are kind of most exciting to you as contributions to this field? Uh, you know, diaries are exciting, um, written by people who experience things at the time and are pouring out their feelings and they know the diary might be read and they're performing, but you can still really get a glimpse of things that you can't see in a newspaper article or an openly published uh, you know, speech by Mao. Uh, and there's just a ton of paperwork that was produced uh, about all kinds of things from the bureaucracy that allowed actually people who were not part of the Communist Party bureaucracy or lower level officials in the bureaucracy allowed them to speak and shift uh, the course of events and change these political campaigns that were emanating uh, from Beijing. And so, uh, so I, I, there's, there's a ton of things that actually you can't find in archives or that won't be allowed, uh, won't be allowed to be shown in archives uh, that you can buy at the flea market or buy online. Uh, and that's, that's the kind of sources that, that, that we're talking about is you actually have to just go and meet people and dig things up. And, and the archive may not be the best place to start necessarily, the, the official uh, party archive. So at this point, because two of your um, individually authored contributions to the volume actually explicitly thematize and take up some of these kinds of sources that you just talked about, I want to just um, ask you very briefly um, to talk about a couple of those. And then, Matt, I'll come back and we'll talk about um, what you tend to see as some of the most important sources. So first off, Jeremy, um, you mentioned diaries. And in Chapter 7, um, you've co-authored a piece that's all about um, a really fascinating diary from 1976 that talks about the Great Tangshan Earthquake of 1976. Um, it talks about the experience of a high school student in Tianjin who was about to be sent down to the countryside. Can you talk a little bit about that source for us? What's, um, where did you find that diary and what for you is most interesting about that as a historical document? So Sha Ching Ching, who works at the Shang, who's a researcher at the Shanghai Library, uh, wrote. But he found the library. I mean, he found the diary. This is his source that he bought at a flea market in Tianjin. He wrote a paper about it at a conference I went to, and I thought it was a great source, combining uh, this description of the earthquake that we'd never be seen before and this uh, teenager's anxiety about going to the countryside in the aftermath of the earthquake and hoping he could find a way out of it. Uh, so we, we had it translated, we submitted it, and the, one of the anonymous reviewers said, uh, I want more meat. 
uh, in this article. I want less description of earthquake uh, casualty figures and damages, and I want, uh, you know, show, don't tell, was sort of what the, uh, show us what the diary is saying. And so uh, I asked Sha Ching Ching if he would share the diary with me, and he did. And I said, will you uh, highlight the things that you think the reviewer would be interested in seeing? And he did. And I read the entire diary, and it turned out that Sha Ching Ching and I saw very different things, and we were interested in various mm-hmm. di- very different things in the article to the, to the point that uh, I, I asked him, uh, you know, would you mind if I highlighted uh, these details that you didn't bring in in order to try to build this argument about anxiety, uh, youth anxiety in 1976? And he said, sure, go for it. And that's why it ended up being co-authored. Uh, was because we just we saw different things, and so this was really one of the more collaborative uh, efforts because uh, you know we just saw I thought saw things in the diary that were extremely significant to me details about everyday life fighting throwing rocks uh, you know cursing at people who cut you off on the bicycle uh, his family's experience uh, and Sha Ching Ching had had a, had a different focus on the earthquake and on the sent down youth angle and putting it all together. Is, is what we what what just this one diary there was so much rich material in it that two people's perspective on it uh was what made that chapter what it was i just want to jump in for a second because it, uh, it sort of intersects there with um some something one theme in particular that i think comes up in the volume as a whole which is um the the uh theme of youth experience you know how uh younger people uh live their lives um in the 60s and 70s uh in in particular i think um, that was a finding that we didn't necessarily expect to see emerge, but um, boy, it really kind of like emerged as one of the most defining uh, aspects of the volume. So Matt, um, while we're talking about this, for you, uh, when we're thinking about the sources for grassroots history, what do you take to be some of the most exciting kinds of sources that emerged out of your work on the volume and, and that we can think about when we think about the potential for grassroots history to really change the way we're talking about this period? Um, I mean, my, my only thoughts there, uh, and then, you know, we, we should go back to Jeremy's stuff and then I'll, I'll talk about mine too. But the, uh, the, the thought I would have there is just simply that, um, Jeremy described, uh, how in China, uh, today, um, you know, people are beginning to write history of the Mao years that does not focus on the, the party and its history. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, that's, that's the intervention that we're making outside of China as well. We wanted to write a volume that didn't focus on Mao. We wanted to write a volume, uh, you know, that brought the voices of ordinary uh, people into the historical narrative. And there are lots of methodological issues, of, of course, with respect to how you do that, you know, sort of teasing things out of archives. Uh, diaries, um, although not unproblematic, perhaps provide a more direct line. Um, but, you know, just generally speaking, uh, we wanted to not, I mean, the work on high politics is fantastic. Uh, much of it, in a sense, has been written and what we thought we could add that was new, uh, you know, really did concern the experiences of ordinary people. But then uh, for the volume as a whole, we had to come up with this framework that explained, um, you know, sort of the, the level of analysis uh, on which we were uh, operating. And, and, you know, that's where this idea of, of the grassroots really came up. And one of, the, I think, the um, the interesting and the important points that the introduction of the volume is making, um, and that I think many of the um, contributions also individually make is that this isn't just about, at least as I as I read it, right? This isn't just about saying this is not 
um, about the party. It's about the people. It's about actually asking us to question and challenge these categories of state and society and the binary relationships we assume when we talk about and write about and think about state and society. I mean, it really is trying to, as far as I understand it, and let me know if I'm, if I'm not getting this right, it's trying to kind of help undo that binary itself and not just reorient us to another you know, side of the binary. Is that right? I think Jeremy should go first because when we get into theory, I tend to become untethered very quickly. So okay. I think <laughs> Jeremy uh, and yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I can get into theory, but I think we can, uh, I think you're right, Carla, that, um, you know, Elizabeth Perry long ago uh, called on scholars to uh, complicate or be more precise and when talking about state versus society and you can't really talk about them as separate entities and so we really try to take up that call in this book and uh joseph escherich did a similar thing in his uh sort of ethnography of lower level village party members in the 1940s uh which showed that of course the the party members are villagers themselves too and villagers themselves can never be completely apolitical uh, you know, daily life is politicized during the Mao period, and we're not trying to say that it wasn't. Uh, but we're looking at the combination of identities that people have, whether it's you're a member of, of a, ethnic, a non-Han ethnic minority group, you have a religious community, uh, you have family communities, and those identities are, depending on the moment and depending on the topic that we're talking about, those identities can be even more important than the Communist Party identity or the Communist Party agenda. So you have all these separate agendas coming together. Uh, and, and that interplay is what we're trying to say. You got to focus on that interplay of different identities and agendas, not just the parties. Uh, and that's what we're trying to get at at the, at the grassroots to show how much more complex it was than just the top down approach. Great. And another um, seemingly really important contribution at this level of how we conceptualize and practice history that the volume is making is also in terms of time. And you talk about this, I think, quite extensively in the introduction. You suggest that the volume is proposing a different way of understanding the temporality of the period. And you talk about this specifically insofar as you're proposing a way to think about high socialism, something called high socialism, but also the way that the work in this volume kind of locates very different um, kinds of turning points and key years than we might otherwise locate with a different source base and a different approach to this period. So did you want right. to talk about this? Um, Matt, did you want to maybe start? by? Well, yeah, sure. I'll, um, you know, uh, Jeremy and uh, our, our mutual advisor, uh, Paul Pekowitz, had worked on an extremely um, well-received volume on the early 50s period. And so, you know, that in a sense um, wasn't going to be uh, a, a focal point for us. And so we were trying to think about how to define um, what came after. And that book is Dilemmas of Victory on Harvard University Press. Um, and in in doing so, and, you know, when taking our agenda to kind of, you know, demaoify uh, those years of, of the uh, people's uh, of, of the history of the People's Republic of China to the extent that we were able, um, this this idea of, of high socialism um, emerged as uh, I think significant and meaningful for us in the sense that it's a period where the the state is quite obviously everywhere, but yet for the reasons that Jeremy's just described, it's important you know not to then you know leave that observation. Observation, um, 
at, 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 at the point where uh, state and society are somehow, you know, two uh, opposing and mutually incommensurable categories. So the, the state is everywhere, but the state, especially at the grassroots level, uh, in, in a very obvious way, is interacting, um, you know, with society and at the same time, members of, you know, society. And there's this sense in, in which from a, a sociological perspective, it's, it's all social, right? But people who are not part of the state uh, are interacting with the state. That's kind of issue one. That's the most obvious one that we've looked at, I think. But then there's another issue to grapple with, which is that you have individual quote unquote state actors who also have other identities, uh, you know, who are operating um, in in ways that I think also uh, came out of our, our sources, for example, and looking at the um, internal politics of government in Xinjiang and some of the, you know, sort of local but still elite politics there. Uh, you know, basically what, what you see are some very divergent interests within this state. So we talked earlier about bringing out, you know, uh, the, the voices of, of ordinary people. But I think at the same time, what we also did was help to unpack and demystify to a certain extent what the, the state means at the level of, of everyday politics. Great. And when the state is, too, right? And when the state is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That, that that sounds pregnant with meaning. I, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, did you want to speak to this issue of temporality and the way that you think – um, the volume is challenging or sort of proposing perhaps a different way of thinking the temporality of this period. Yeah, I mean, the textbook, the textbook version of, of PRC history still uh, unavoidably, I think, jumps from political campaign to political campaign. And so you've got, you know, really strong focus on you're always going to have a section on the anti-rightist movement and you're going to have a date associated with that. You're going to focus on the Great Leap Forward. Uh, and each political campaign leads into the next campaign. So the Great Leap Forward, 58, 60, 61, that fails. Mao gets mad. And then you get into the Cultural Revolution because Mao felt threatened and the revolution was threatened. And then so 1966, and that ends in 1976. So you have all these dates that really come from uh, political movements, and all of those are dictated by the top. And that's the way that our textbooks get written. Of course, social scientists who wrote the first draft of this history are much more sensitive to uh, there being other dates that are important, and social scientists have already pointed out, like we say in the introduction of the book, they've already pointed out there's all, there's all kind of conflict, and the party's goals are ne- not necessarily just uh, the party doesn't say something and then it automatically happens. I mean, there's all kinds of variation, and so we're we're following up on the on the work of social scientists on this, uh, but also trying to say that uh, our approach is really a grassroots approach by by looking at uh, a place. Uh, like a, like uh, Wang Hai Guang looks at this uh, rural mountainous Miao County in Guizhou Province. Uh, the dates, uh, the, the 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 Great Leap Forward date is not really the most important date. The beginning of the first five year plan in 1953 is not the most important date. Uh, it's when does collectivization happen in this village? What does it mean? And so suddenly, 1955-56 are these years of great trauma and rebellion in this ethnic minority era. Era, era. So why that happens for every chapter and every topic and every region that you look at, uh, depending on your focus, there's going to be a different important year and a different important turning point uh, that doesn't necessarily stick to the clock of the political movements in Beijing. And so Gail Hershatter uh, started this project to get away from campaign time and look at other timelines. And we're trying to follow up on what what she did uh, in our approach to to the chronology. 
That's right. And I mean, the two areas where we probably could have, I mean, and I think where, where future scholarship will do even more, um, you know, one would be to have integrated perhaps, you know, place into this uh, in a more analytically sustained way. But, uh, you know, we had a pretty eclectic group of papers. And so that wasn't necessarily something that emerged for us, although obviously distinctions between city and countryside is Jeremy's work and other uh, venues, including his book, uh, you know, has, has really shown, um, you know, mattered uh, whether one was uh, in a sort of Han urban core or along an ethnic frontier uh, that also um, mattered. And then I, I, I think, you know, how those uh, dynamics mattered uh, will probably be um, articulated, uh, you know, perhaps better by future scholars, several from our UCSD cohort who are working on this kind of stuff. Um, but then also, uh, you know, connecting the PRC period to uh, or the, the, the Mao era, you know, which we kind of reproduced through our chronology, even if we took Mao um, out of the picture somewhat, you know, we've still got basically a book that, uh, you know, starts in the mid 50s and goes a little bit past um, 1976. But, uh, you know, I, I think that future scholarship will link uh, this period of history up with other periods in, in some pretty interesting ways. Um, and so we've got that to look forward to. Now, Jeremy, um, the other individually authored or the individually authored, rather, because the other one was co-authored um, essay that you contributed to the volume um, explicitly takes on this problematization of particular divides. Um, you, you talk here in Chapter 2, Moving Targets, Changing Class Labels in Rural, rural Hebei and Hunan, 1960 to 1979. You talk about using a particularly fascinating, at least for me, this is a particularly fascinating set of sources that challenge, among other things, the divides of 1966 and 1976. And you've just spoken a little bit to that. Now, this chapter highlights the dynamic and instable or unstable nature of the class status system. And in um, introducing us to the case studies of this chapter, you also introduce us to class status files of individuals and families from Hebei and Hunan. Can you talk a little bit about these sources? Um, how did you find them? I mean, you talk about this a little bit in the book, but for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read the book, how did you find them? And for you, um, what was most interesting about working with these kinds of sources to tell this particular kind of story? I first came across these uh, class status files in Tianjin in 2004, 2005, when I was doing my dissertation research on, on rural-urban difference and the rural-urban divide, and I just bought anything that I, that I found interesting. And so I found these booklets of uh, basically three or four pages per family and their forms, standardized forms, that are filled out by work teams during the four cleanups movement in 1965 and 66 uh, from Hebei province and I later on found some from other provinces. And they're basically uh, reassessing and reaffirming or maybe even changing the class status labels of every family in every village. So you have a discussion of uh, what was the family's class status uh, b right before land reform? What about right after land reform? And what about right now? Uh, that's what actually this form says. Right now uh, is what. <laughs> and so we don't even have it. Some of them, you don't have a date, but you know it's talking about the present. And so it's just this amazing source you can do all kinds of things with. Uh, you, could look at, uh, you could look at the economic change over time. Uh, but what I was most interested in was uh, since everybody was being reassessed, suddenly you have this instability because since you're being reassessed, you might get changed. Uh, you might get your label changed. And indeed, some people did have their class status labels changed from something they liked before. They liked being 
a middle peasant that wasn't disadvantageous to them and suddenly they turn into a rich peasant or a landlord and their life gets a lot harder and they protest. And uh, in some of these files, once I decided I liked this topic and I wanted to look into this instability in the class status uh, uh, system, I got a lot of help from scholars at Nankai University and at Shanghai Jiao Tong University who had other types of these forms. And then I went on uh, Kung Fu Zhe, a used book network on, uh, online, and I bought a bunch more online when you could still do that uh, back when I was writing this paper. So I, I mostly had them from Hebei and Hunan, and I put them together to, uh, to try to tell this story where actually 1966 is not the key year. So the Cultural Revolution is not the key uh, driving factor in getting these class status labels uh, and people's class status labels being reassessed. It's actually the four cleanups movement. And before that, it starts in the aftermath of, of, of the famine. So you have famine misbehavior leading to people being punished with worse class labels in Hunan province in 1960-61. Then you have uh, it happening in a more widespread way, but in a really haphazard way uh, in 1965-66 because there's all kinds of confusion about how to reassess people. There's confusion about whether we should keep doing it. Uh, and then at, by the end of the process, uh, which goes past 1976 and goes into 1978-79, uh, you have people who don't want the class status system to end. I mean, the class status system ends and people are not supposed to be called landlords or rich peasants in 1978, 79. Uh, and they say, I don't want to be called just a commune member. I want my correct label back. You know, I, you called me a rich peasant. I want you to call me a middle peasant again. Don't cancel the whole system. And so that was really striking to me. Uh, it was actually the Mao period should have been over in 1976, actually. But there are people in villages who actually had a lot at stake in being called the right thing having the proper label in their mind rectified and not just canceling the whole system uh, after Mao died and Deng Xiaoping comes to power. Great. Now, as we move from your chapter um, to Matt's chapter, we move from sources that are found in used book markets to archival sources. And Matt, you've already talked um, a little bit about, or you've alluded to a little bit, um, the kind of challenges of teasing things out of archives and teasing these grassroots stories in particular out of what seems at least to be a very different kind of source base. So could you right. talk um, about your chapter? And this is for listeners, Chapter 8, Beneath the Propaganda State, Official and Unofficial Cultural Landscapes in Shanghai, 1949 to 1965. Sure. Um, I mean, just to give people a sense of the overall structure of, of the book, if it hasn't come out, I, you know, it's, it's a book that deals with... Um, everyday uh, life in Mao's China from four different perspectives. We looked at uh, class labels, crime and punishment. Uh, that was addressed somewhat by Jeremy. Um, we looked at economic mobilization. Um, we looked at culture and information. And so that's what I'll get at in just a second. And we also looked at violence and issues of, of state violence and internal policing. Um, and so in my chapter, what I tried to do was use uh, files from, um, well, mainly from the municipal archives of the uh, Shanghai uh, city government um, and uh, tried to get into those as a way of understanding what cultural dissemination looked like on the ground. Uh, and so in the chapter, I sort of made a, a, a micro version of a case that I think could be made at the national level as well, um, which I think, frankly, 
kind of flies in the face of a lot of the of, of the conventional scholarly wisdom on um, China during the Mao years, uh, which is simply that culture was not the same everywhere, you know, and e- even within Shanghai, because Shanghai had rural outskirts and, and, and Shanghai had richer and, and, and poorer districts, um, cultural infrastructure varied, uh, people had different levels of access, um, the sort of organizational thickness uh, varied, and so people had very different experiences of state messages and and images and all of that. And uh, that was an exciting finding for me. Um, Another exciting finding, of course, was that, I mean, uh, I think Jeremy and I both agree that even if it wasn't all about the Cultural Revolution, the great leap forward, uh, you know, the sort of late 50s, early 60s period really is a kind of pivot point in in the history of uh, uh, China um, uh, during this high socialist era. And so in Shanghai, what you see um, is that the 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 state, you know, is um, challenged uh, across a wide range of areas and and most notably it is fiscally challenged. And so what it does is it, it in essence downsizes a lot of its cultural programs uh, and um, also in order to preserve their own legitimacy, local uh, cadres get a lot more lax about their enforcement of official cultural policy. And so into this space suddenly, you know, come rural entertainers who are trying to make money by setting up uh, uh, on the outskirts of the urban core, um, Samizdat publications, uh, film uh, imports from Hong Kong, which were actually allowed uh, as, as, as a matter of state policy, but there was plenty of stuff smuggled in that wasn't allowed. And actually, I think the cultural landscape was potentially uh, a lot more heterogeneous to the point, actually. And, you know, let me let me just to be slightly provocative, say this. Uh, I don't think that studies of literature and culture in the People's Republic of China necessarily tell us a lot about either what people thought or what people were even exposed to at all. Uh, You really have to get locally specific with it. And you also have to get temporally specific with it. And um, it's further complicated by the fact that because uh, China's, uh, you know, say, uh, film studios, which which I've looked at extensively, you know, did not always operate at full capacity for a variety of organizational, uh, political and financial reasons. Um, old films were often recycled through the through the, the channels of state propaganda. And so, you know, what the 60s looked like from a culture perspective or even what the 50s looked like or, you know, honestly, at at any point uh, along that uh, chronology, you know, whether we even know um, what sorts of things people were uh, seeing, uh, hearing, etc. I mean, to to me, those are all exciting, but also very open-ended questions. And what you're bringing up is actually a really useful way of speaking to, I think, something that you pointed to a little bit earlier, which is the importance of place and integrating an attentiveness to place into this. I think you say specifically in this essay that one of the things that your study in particular does is offer a kind of spatially informed perspective. And so I think this is a really nice way of understanding, um, even at the um, at a basic level, how the volume is both contributing to kind of refocusing us on different ways of understanding the time of this period, but also how we might differently understand the space of this period. 
Well, I mean, that in a way I, I, I get from Jeremy's work, just looking at urban versus rural. Uh, you know, I, I started this, um, you know, in a slightly pre-GIS age, at least for me, uh, you know, and so it's really just a very skeletal, uh, you know, kind of outline of um, you know, spatial uh, difference with respect to culture uh, within China. But I think it does overlap with some pretty important um, institutional and economic differences that, you know, both created and existed across different spaces within the People's Republic of China. Great. Now, one of the terms that you brought up as well in your description of your own contribution speaks to um, one of the kind of clusters or constellations of themes that both of you talk about in the introduction. And as, as we kind of move toward the kind of conclusion of our conversation, mm-hmm. I don't want to um, end without at least addressing this um, to some extent. So you use the word violence. Um, and one of the things that the introduction to the volume mentions um, as that one of the contributions that it's doing is um, or that it's making is not understating the routine violence, the repression and the resistance in the now period. So, uh, you know, this really brings our attention to the everyday violence, repression and resistance that perhaps we're not um, as aware of from other kinds of work. Jeremy, did you want to speak to this issue of uh, the way that the volume, in, in, insofar as you imagine it, actually and potentially contributes to how we understand routine violence, repression, and resistance in this period? Yeah, this is a, I mean, this is really a thorny issue because it's very political and it's still colored by the Cold War assessments of the Mao period, where uh, if you want to show that you are a proper uh, anti-communist, you decry uh, the Mao period as a period of terror uh, and misery across the board from start to finish uh, for everybody. And I mean, the the caricature of this, uh, there are several caricatures uh, of this, uh, this kind of approach. And we we definitely didn't want that. but we didn't want to go to the other extreme. I mean, we, we didn't want a character because it's totally inaccurate. I mean, that we, we, we can't say that the Mao period was misery and violence for everybody at all times and all places because it wasn't. I mean, people were thriving in their jobs, some of them. People were laughing and having fun. People were falling in love and having sex. People uh, were eating and celebrating holidays, and there was no terror involved in any of those things. Uh, and that was a lot of the Mao period, right? It was just everyday life and, uh, and, and not a whole lot of stress. And so, but we, uh, we wanted to recognize that, yeah, there was, uh, there was routine violence and repression and stress uh, in a lot of environments, villages, cities, uh, and it had to do uh, and it, but it wasn't just uh, the Cultural Revolution. It wasn't just anarchy. It wasn't. Uh, it, I mean, so we wanted to be as precise about it as possible. And you really you see that in Yang Kuei Song's chapter, uh, where a gay factory worker is uh, is repressed in by by his uh, by his bosses and by the public security uh, regime in a, in a in a really stressful way for him. Uh, we see it especially in Steve Smith's chapter about uh, redemptive societies. So these grassroots religious societies that tried to form new dynasties and then were cracked down on uh, by the state. Uh, and, and you see it in all kinds of other um, walks of life as well. And so we're, I think we're, we're trying to chart a middle ground of, uh, you know, what was it like? Uh, it, we can't just say it was terror and violence at all moments. Uh, it was, uh, and Daniel Lee's chapter about uh, counter, people punished as counter-revolutionaries for, uh, and, and, and then appealing their cases and having their cases overturned. That's another one where, uh, you know, you talk about uh, cabbages 
one example in his in his chapter of, of somebody talking about these stinking cabbages and somebody assumed he was talking about Mao, so he's put in jail for several years for that. I mean, so that kind of thing did happen, right? I mean, that's a that's a terrible injustice uh, that really comes out from Daniel's uh, Daniel's chapter, and uh, and those those are the kind of details that that I think are, are worth worth pointing out. Matthew, Definitely. To I mean, yeah, I would add that um, we, I think, were able through a couple of chapters, uh, a really fantastic chapter, for example, by uh, Wang Xiaoxuan, who at that time was an ABD PhD student at Harvard University. I have to catch up with him and see where he is now. Um, you know, really gets it, I think, a, a dynamic that is crucial for understanding the People's Republic of China today as well, which is that local Local representatives of the state uh, resorted to a variety of um, techniques, uh, so to speak, for re-legitimizing themselves in moments of state crisis, meaning that, for example, uh, they became more permissive. Um, they allowed local religion, uh, you know, to uh, continue to um, emerge, uh, you know, even after it had been perhaps tamped down uh, just one or two years prior. And, you know, more interestingly, and, and this again gets back to the point about I- identities, um, many of them were, uh, you know, subscribers uh, to the same local religions. In fact, were, were patrons, uh, you know, of those religions. And that um, is really interesting. And it's interesting. Interesting because then what we see is it, it not only wasn't just violence, but it, it was something else. And what it was was uh, local uh, representatives of the state, so to speak, um, governing in ways that were essentially to them humane and just and took account of, uh, you know, local conditions that weren't just about reinforcing central diktat. And again, we can argue about how much, you know, that does or doesn't define politics uh, during the Mao years. But I think just to have pointed to it in the first place is, in fact, a major finding. Great. So we're now coming to the conclusion of our conversation. And there's so much we didn't talk about, even though we did um, touch on a lot of what I think are some of the most um, trenchant uh, critiques and contributions that the volume is making. And, and the both of you were very generous in bringing up a number of the other uh, pieces over the course of the conversation. So given that, is there anything that we didn't get to, but that you'd like to mention and kind of leave listeners with before we close? Jeremy, anything you want to kind of add that didn't come up? Well, I just, I guess I would just make a case for uh, this type of uh, edited volume, this type of collaborative effort with uh, with 13 chapters and more than that number of, of contributors as a really useful and contribution to new knowledge about history, no, not just PRC history, but any type of history. I mean, uh, the publishing industry and the way that uh, we as professors are evaluated on our research output doesn't really have room for this kind of book. And we're, so I'm really thankful to Harvard University Press for encouraging us and sticking with us all the way through. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a time-consuming project than writing an, an individually authored book, I think. Uh, but the payoff is, is, I think, greater in terms of, uh, of what, what you can get out of it. So uh, I hope that edited volumes like this uh, continue to exist and, uh, and that they don't just get pushed aside by, you know, cons- Con- academic, not non-academic concerns, basically. Mm. Matt, yeah, what about you? anything um, that you'd want to add? 
Um, I mean, it's such a wide open question and my mind is brimming with responses because this has been such a stimulating interview. But, uh, you know, honestly, I think that if what we're talking about is an edited volume on uh, the People's Republic of China during the Mao years, then the point that I'd like listeners to uh, come away with is that it's a fascinating period. Um, it belongs in uh, histories of modern China. It's going to, you know, I, I think understanding that period is going to have ramifications for how uh, modern China is understood more generally. And um, I, I would love to see, you know, scholars outside of, uh, you know, modern Chinese history or Asian studies or, uh, you know, fields that are focused on China, Asia, et cetera, read the book. And, you know, to the extent that uh, they're able to respond to it, because obviously, you know, China is an important topic these days, but um, there are still a lot of one dimensional stereotypes out there. Uh, and um, there are also important methodological questions that are raised, um, you know, by the research that any of us are doing on everyday life. And it would just be great if it served as a jumping off point for, you know, wider engagement with the field of history or, you know, Chinese studies as a whole. Great. Thank you. So, Jeremy, to the final thing that I'll ask the both of you um, is what you're working on now. Now, Jeremy, you already mentioned kind of at the beginning to really fascinating projects. You talked briefly about something on accidents um, and then something on uh, Tiananmen in 1989. Did you want to say a little bit more about either or both of those? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just say that, you know, I mean, for the accidents project, I'm working on both of these simultaneously and the, working on the 1980s and trying to understand the lead up to Tiananmen Square in 1989 has convinced me that actually my accidents project, which was originally uh, conceived of as a Mao period project, uh, it has now pushed into the 1980s, and I'm convinced that the ni- you can't separate the 1980s from the 1970s. I, I st- I've, and this project, Maoism at the Grassroots, has helped me to to see that. Uh, but the, just the it's the same people, you know, it's the same people in the 1980s in the same positions of power uh, that they were in before the 1980s. It's it's the same Communist Party. There's a few there's a lot of important things that have changed, of course. But uh, but to to separate the 70s from the 80s to me, it doesn't really make sense anymore. So, Matt, you've talked a little bit um, uh, early on about PRChistory.org and some of the other things you're involved in. Did you want to say a little bit more about what's inspiring you right now? Uh, What's inspiring me right now? What's inspiring me right now is that I think that, you know, we are going to learn a lot more in the future about how uh, this era of, you know, politics was actually experienced. And so that's something um, to look forward to. And I think also, you know, something that I'm personally looking forward to, in addition to getting my own monograph finished, is, um, uh, you know, more work, I think, on China's foreign relations during this same period period. So this was obviously a book that was very much focused on what was going on within uh, the boundaries of, of uh, the People's Republic of China, the territorial boundaries. But, you know, going forward, uh, bringing in international uh, relations, transnational relations, etc., um, I think will probably also teach us new things about uh, the evolution of China's place within the international order, if we want to frame it that way, which I just did. So there we go. Well, thank you both. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on a great volume. Thanks very much, Carla. Thanks for having us, Carla. Of course. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.